Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. President Trump's call yesterday for no more violence from supporters was too little too late, as the House of Representatives voted to impeach him for inciting his followers to storm the Capitol last week. Here's House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. He must go. He is a clear and present danger to the nation that we all love. Representative Liz Cheney and nine other Republicans supported the move, while other Republican members argued that a hastily concocted impeachment that will fail to be considered in the Senate on time will not help the nation heal division. Coming up, we'll get the latest on the historic second impeachment of President Trump next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. In a historic vote, the House of Representatives moved yesterday to impeach President Donald Trump for inciting an insurrection that left five people dead. And unlike Trump's first impeachment, this one was bipartisan, with 10 Republican senators voting for it. But rancor and division were on full display in Congress yesterday. Here's Bay Area Representative Anna Eshoo. We must impeach the president because he incited a mob that attacked the capital of the United States the tabernacle of our democracy. North State Congressman Doug Lamalfa disagreed. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the second annual impeachment show extravaganza brought to you by the censors and left-wing media, the fact-checked ministers of shutdown and big tech and the Democrat party. Today, the second annual impeachment of President Trump isn't really about actual words spoken out of rally. No, this is all about, Madam Speaker, the unbridled hatred of this president. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has excluded the possibility of an impeachment trial before the inauguration, and we're going to get the latest on the historic impeachment and what happens next. Joining us, Chris McGarrian, White House reporter with the Los Angeles Times. Welcome to Forum. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you, and also glad to have Jessica Taylor, who is state and governor's editor with the Cook Political Report. Welcome, Jessica Taylor. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you. And we also have with us our own Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent for KQED and co-host of KQED's Political Breakdown Show. And welcome, Marisa. Great to be here, Michael. Good to have you. And let me begin with you, Marisa. The uh, fact of the matter is that this is Act Two, or maybe the final act in many respects, I suppose. And the president was really found uh, culpable of unleashing a mob on the sanctity of the Capitol. Uh, not patriots, uh, as some have described them, but as certainly in the uh, one article of impeachment, what we would say are domestic terrorists. And this single article, I mean, let, let's talk about this in terms of the previous impeachment, because to some extent there wasn't the necessity of providing a lot of evidence or a lot of proof or a lot of wrangling back and forth. It was all pretty much out there. 
Yeah, I mean, if you talk, if you listen to what the impeachment managers in the House are saying, they they think this is a pretty open and shut case. They point to the president's statements, you know, since the election on Twitter and elsewhere, uh, to his speech before the White House, uh, urging folks to march on the Capitol the day of the insurrection, um, and really to what people within that mob have said, both on social media and and since then. And so I think that for them, they didn't think that there was a need, um, you know, for for all of the hearings and, and documents that we saw. The first one, uh, this one, I heard it characterized by one House member, it was just done out in the open. Um, and I think you saw that some, you know, not a lot, but some Republicans agreed, 10, including David Valadeo of California's Central Valley, voted in favor of impeachment. Yeah, and nevertheless, since we're talking about California for a moment, we had uh, Kevin McCarthy uh, saying that the impeachment would only divide. He called for a fact-finding commission. He called for the president possibly to be censured, but he also said that the president bears responsibility. Yeah, I mean, it is... I think important because this is the strongest statement we've probably ever heard Kevin McCarthy make against President Trump. He's been a very loyal ally of the president. Um, and we are hearing from reports in Washington that the president is angry about McCarthy's comments. But let's be clear. I mean, they stopped far short of calling for his removal, of acknowledging, I think, the full culpability. Um, you know, this is I would I would read it politically as McCarthy trying to walk a very fine line. And, you know, you're seeing the split with Liz Cheney, um, the number three in the House Republican caucus who did vote for it and has spoken out very forcefully you know some people on within the far right of the caucus calling for her to resign so I don't I don't I mean Jessica and, and Chris may know better but I don't think we really know how this is going to fully play out within the House Republican caucus and what it means for Kevin McCarthy's future um, he of course would love to be speaker if they can regain the majority in a couple of years well let's talk with you Jessica Taylor about how this is apt to play out in the Senate uh, there's not going to be any business until January 19th uh, the day before Joe Biden has sworn into office, and it's pretty clear that Mitch McConnell's strategy is at least holding in a holding pattern here of some sort. But uh, Chuck Schumer wants uh, kind of an emergency session, doesn't he? He does. And McConnell has said that he will not acquiesce to that. I mean, these are McConnell's sort of last few days as majority leader. But I think that you have the Biden administration that wants to move quickly, especially on many of their cabinet nominees that have not gotten a vote or a hearing rather, um, you know, as, as oftentimes most presidential nominees w will do and will have sort of especially their core national security team in place on inauguration day. This has not happened in large part because of these you know, baseless claims of fraud that have slowed things down, in addition to the two Georgia runoffs that we had just last week that were then going to determine who held the majority. So that was going to be decisive as well. But even with this, you have McConnell that, you know, while he was a staunch opponent of the impeachment last year, um, has sounded open to possibly voting to convict. So that is the more interesting thing to me is that if McConnell, e even signaling that he is open, could give some Republicans cover, um, I still think it's very hard to get to those 67 votes to convict. And then there's questions about, you know, what force that would have even after he's left office. There is, you know, could it, um, you know, people wanting to bar him from running in 2024 seems like the most likely, um, you know, course for that. Um, but you would have a Senate that is tied up 
in the mornings um, for six days um, straight for this trial of someone that has left office when you do have the Biden administration that I think is pulled in different directions of that they feel like the president should be punished for what he has done and should face repercussions. But they also want to move forward with their own agenda and moving past Trump. So, I mean, this puts this puts many people, including McConnell, Schumer and Biden in a in a untenable position in many ways. It's a kind of Gordian knot for all of them when you analyze it. Yeah. The fact is, though, that I'm struck by the fact that McConnell has said he would consider voting in favor of conviction. And by the way, I think it would only take a majority to exclude the president from office, uh, though it would take two thirds to convict him. And that means right. 17 senators. But the fact is, Mitch McConnell met with donors and a lot of them said Trump has crossed the line here. And that's maybe the big factor here in many respects, along with the fact that he's got a uh, see that Republicans are defending 20 of 34 seats for 2022 election, and he's mindful of the voters here. Yeah, I mean, they clearly want to get back in the majority in 2022, which is certainly possible when you look at the Senate map um, and the fact that when you have presidents in their first midterms, we typically see them lose seats. Um, so, I mean, that's a factor for McCarthy in the House as well. And of course, in the House, we will have redistricting that will have redrawn a lot of these lines and could make them certainly more favorable to Republicans as well in many places. Um, but you you did feel like last Wednesday was a break because you had McConnell that got up there, gave a very fiery speech against the president and the this push for um you know not certifying certain states even before the sort of insurrection and people overran the capital happened um and then when they were able to return much later that evening after the building had been secured um you could tell he was even angrier and so he has spoken out in more forcefulness of the president McConnell and Trump were never natural allies. McConnell is as much of an institutionalist as you can get, but he saw Trump as someone to get through his major priorities in the Senate. Well, the tax cuts and judges, basically. Exactly. Judges. And so, I mean, they had, I think, a relationship of convenience. And I think that Republicans in large part are learning, though, that, okay, this deal that you made, it has consequences. And... Um, they saw that borne out last Wednesday. I'm not the first to say it. It's been described as a Faustian bargain. Uh, Jessica yes. <laughs> Taylor, again, is Senate and governor's editor with the Cook Political Report. We also have Chris McGarrian with us this morning, White House reporter with the Los Angeles Times. And Chris, I'm eager to hear your response to the fact that the president came out first uh, with this mob and said, I love you and uh, your patriots and uh, essentially... Uh, uh, said uh, in a very public way, you're special and all of those kinds of things, and then did some extraordinary backpedaling the other day, I guess, to uh, um, ensure maybe that uh, he would stop the dam uh, from all of its flowing or the blood from hemorrhaging, depending on your metaphor here. I'm just wondering how you see this in the balance and in terms of particularly what propelled him to say what he said just yesterday on that video that uh you know you're going against law enforcement and this uh, action should never be taken uh, there's no way to support our movement right so so this is something i've thought a lot about and something we've seen happen repeatedly throughout trump's term i kind of call it the uh, the charlottesville trajectory you know after the violence uh in charlottesville in 2017 he initially said both sides were to blame and after he got a lot of blowback for that, he read a speech in the White House, very 
wooden delivery, you know, very much he felt like he was obligated to do it where he denounced racism in all its forms. And then a couple of days later, he made his infamous comments where he said there were very fine people on both sides. And he always kind of reverts to what he initially wants to say when he's challenged on it, when he feels like he's being backed into a corner. Uh, so you have that same, you know, back and forth in this situation as well. He makes his initial speech. He says, you know, there are very special people that he loves at the Capitol, you know, attacking Congress. Uh, and then he backpedals. He, you know, does a video. He, uh, but then, you know, as soon as he talks to reporters again, while he's on his way to Texas uh, earlier this week, he's saying, I said nothing wrong. I said nothing wrong. Um, in fact, he said, they night, told me. I'm not sure who this they is. <laughs> they said it was yes. completely appropriate what I said, whomever yeah, they that's, may be. That's, you know, a, a common Trump phrase. You know, many people are saying everybody knows, you know, some people told me. Uh, you never know who these people are. Um, and I guess the same people told them, them same people who told them that Barack Obama was born in Kenya, I think. Right? Yes, he has. A, he has a good source on that. He told us. Um, so, you know, he, he has this he has advisors still who are trying to get him to clean up what he's saying and, and you know, make these statements denouncing violence. And then you have the things that he really does want to say and the things that he'll say when he's not being scripted. But no contrition in this speech. And also uh, some comments about the assault on free speech, which I guess he is particularly putting out there because of his being barred from Twitter. And we can talk about that. Uh, so it was uh, really kind of a mix, uh, even in that uh, what, what some took as a kind of warning to the troops that they shouldn't go forward with any of this law breaking anymore uh, to cover himself, perhaps. And great part as well. I want to invite our listeners to join this conversation. In fact, if you have something you'd like to say or offer, or if you have questions, particularly questions or comments about the impeachment and next steps, give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That number again for your calls, 866-733-6786, or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're getting the latest on the historic impeachment and what happens next with Jessica Taylor, Senate and Governor's Editor with the Cook Political Report. Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent for KQED and co-host of KQED's Political Breakdown Show. And Chris McGarrian, who is White House reporter with the Los Angeles Times. And Chris, let me go back to you about um, really what's taking place now. Federal prosecutors are opening uh, an investigation and a possible sedition and conspiracy. We've got all kinds of uh, thoughts about possible police officers being involved and others who may have been involved, including some allegations about Republican members of Congress. Uh, where are we and where are we likely to go now? Uh, well, what we're seeing right now is an incredibly widespread law enforcement effort. Uh, you know, essentially, what you were looking at is a nationwide dragnet to identify and charge people who were involved in the attack on the Capitol. So we've seen a number of, you know, high profile people already charged, you know, people that you've seen in a lot of photos, the guy who had his feet up on Nancy Pelosi's desk, 
Um, and now I think the question is, well, how much further they're going to go? Are they going to charge every single person who's been in a photo? Are they going to try to charge only the, the worst offenders? And then the next question is, who else are they going to uh, investigate at potentially organizing this? Can you show that this was not spontaneous, that there was actual conspiratorial planning behind this? Um, and that's something that will be very interesting to see as far as whether or not there were other political figures or political activists who were involved, or if there is internal planning among these militia and far right groups to actually launch an attack like this. Well, there's also, and Marissa, I'm going to go back to you on this. There's certainly also a lot of uh, talk in the dark web and all these other places where these white supremacists and uh, many of the extreme Trump supporters uh, find alliance and warrior type attitudes. Uh, they're talking about uh, really a civil war. They're talking about invading the Capitol again. At the time of the inauguration, there are 20,000 National Guard troops that will be there. This is unprecedented. Uh, let's talk about that, but also let's talk about what's going on here at the state Capitol uh, in Sacramento. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the real challenge right now for law enforcement is that this isn't just one targeted threat at the nation's capital. The FBI uh, put out a bulletin this week warning of the possibility for unrest at all 50 state capitals. And, you know, talking to leaders around California, they say, um, you know, they feel pretty confident. Uh, the state capital in California here sort of has similar security measures that we're seeing now in Washington, where people can't even get up onto the steps or on the lawn around it. It's already closed because of COVID-19. Um, so some lawmakers I talked to in law enforcement said they're actually a little more worried about the possibility for smaller but potentially violent demonstrations in cities and counties, you know, at courthouses or city halls. Um, I think just the magnitude of this and the kind of uh, the fact that it is so disparate, the threat is is definitely posing a challenge. Um, but, you know, compared to last week, it certainly seems like things are much more in control in D.C. Um, you know, which is, I think it's important to note, like, this is not in our free democracy, the way we want to be holding inaugurations. I mean, it's pretty striking seeing the photos of, you know, the mall closed down and, and just this, um, the people's house really being, I mean, it was already pretty shut down because of COVID, but completely inaccessible. And if I could go back to you for a minute, Jessica Taylor, I want to bring our callers into this and remind you that you can be part of this program by calling in toll free at 866-733-6786. That's again, 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook or at KQED Forum or email us forum at kqed.org. Uh, it would be a tremendous understatement to say that uh, President-elect Joe Biden is facing some extraordinary challenges, to put it mildly. Um, but one of the big things that's happening now is there's a lot that's being rammed through the Congress uh, that, uh, again, is pretty much in line with a lot of Mitch McConnell's notion of uh, what he'd like to get through. And what he's getting through is, uh, particularly when we think about uh, legislation that goes against climate change uh, reform and the way that many people feel it's needed, that, that hits on so many levels, uh, uh, against uh, what certainly Democrats want. Um, what are we seeing at this point? There have been a lot of final regulation changes from the Trump administration, too. But I mean, I think that the question that I think a lot of us are waiting to see what could come from the la final few days of Trump's presidency is the big question to me is pardons. Um, you know, he has handed them out in large part to 
for people who have done things for him, um, who have been loyal to him, his, you know, former campaign associates that were jailed, like Paul Manafort or Roger Stone. Um, uh, so I think that's that's sort of something to watch. And then there's been a question of, you know, the many reports in the past few days of the president sort of stewing alone at the in the West Wing. Um, watching all of this unfold on TV, getting very angry because very few people are defending him anymore, even reports that he's now sort of angry and estranged at Rudy Giuliani, who was one of his sort of last um, allies and different things. And Excuse me, Jessica, you know, didn't he say he's not going to pay Giuliani? That's the latest. Yeah, he least. did. He did in one, in both the Times and the Post have reported that. So, you know, at one point, I think Giuliani was demanding $20,000 a day for the, um, you know, the election quote unquote fraud quote unquote work that he was doing um but whether trump is a wants to, tries to pardon himself which would just be um you know legal uh, unpress an unprecedented move that we have never seen any president take before whether that would even be legal whether it would stand um pardon himself for things that he now fears that he could be indicted for once he leaves office that the office has shielded him for so while there, I do feel like there is a sense here that Trump is sort of resigned now to leaving office, there's still six days and that leaves a lot of time still for um, five and a half days, I guess, really for the, the that he could still still do things, certainly. Yeah, certainly. Let me uh, bring a caller on. Elena joins us as our first caller this morning. Elena, welcome. You're on the air. Michael, good morning. Um, I actually have uh, a lot of things on my mind, but at the top, I would like to be able to understand how it is that one person, in this case, Mitch McConnell, can possibly hold hostage the rest of the, of the Senate members. How, I mean, why is he able to just decide what comes to the floor and what, and, and what doesn't? We have a pandemic right now where people are truly hurting and people are hurting regardless of party affiliation or their faith belief or, or lack thereof. And Elena, yet, it's an important question, and, and I thank you for it. And Jessica Taylor, the easy answer is, of course, that right now, until uh, there's a changing of the guard, which is coming up very soon, Mitch McConnell has the power. Yeah, I mean, that's the way the Senate is set up. The rules are set up is that the majority leader has an extraordinary power to bring things to the floor or, or not. And so I think that's why these two Georgia races and were so important and that both sides were pushing. But really, I think what it came down to, many, many things. I mean, the president claiming fraud and sort of focusing on, um, you know, hitting, attacking Republicans there in the state did not help. But Republicans' best message all along was that they needed to be a check on a democratic house and a democratic white house and they could not make that message effectively because the president would not even admit that he lost and that there would be a democratic white house coming in and so while so democrats were able to galvanize their voters and to even increase turnout um 
among key constituencies, especially among black voters from what had even happened from turnout even on November 3rd. And so now you will have Chuck Schumer as the majority leader. Now it's a very tenuous majority. It's literally a 50-50 split. And um, Schumer gets the majority because you have Kamala Harris that will be the president as vice president, will be president of the Senate and will cast a tie-breaking vote. We can see her there quite a bit um, uh, as, as well. And of course, there could be watching for people who might be party switching because you had the same scenario that happened in in um, 2020, or excuse me, in 2000, rather, when it was also an evenly divided Senate, but then um, uh, you um, you had Jim Jeffords that uh, Democrats were able to convince to um, flip to their side. And now you have Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who uh, probably is capable of flipping again to the Republican side, but we'll continue talking about this. Uh, and I want to bring another caller on in the meantime, though. That's Anthony from Belmont. Anthony, join us. Uh, hello, sir. Uh, first time caller. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, big fan. Thank you for your voice and everything you've done throughout the years. Uh, my question is, <clears throat> you mentioned a dragnet uh, sort of investigation of how they're going to survey this uh, riot on the Capitol. Uh, how much of the percentage of that investigation will sort of lie under the president? And how much will be outside of his hands? I'll take my question uh, off the air. Thank you. All right. Thank you for the question. Chris McGarrion. Uh, so, uh, if the question is how much will Joe Biden be able to influence the investigation, uh, you know, Biden has pledged to keep his hands off any investigations run by his Justice Department. Um, so uh, I, I think, you know, you will see a, a shift from President Trump, who has always wanted to use the Justice Department for his own political goals. Um, I do think more broadly, though, you'll see a shift in political focus. Um, you know, every administration has its own goals. And what you saw under President Trump was a de-emphasis on domestic terrorism, white supremacy and other domestic threats. Uh, and uh, given the people that Joe Biden is putting in his administration uh, and the threats that we're currently facing, uh, I think you can see uh, a much higher focus on that going forward. Again, Chris McGarry and his White House reporter with the Los Angeles Times and Marisa Lago, a question from a listener named Sonia who says, I cannot understand why we need this public inauguration with 20,000 National Guard troops. We are paying for this extravagance at a time when so many are hungry and in need of aid. Is this just for the appearance that we can go forward as normal? Well, I mean, it's not just for the inauguration, right? I mean, a lot of these troops have been here to protect the Capitol. And I think, I think, you know, there is an argument for the importance of not being deterred by this type of attack for the symbolism of having a visible inauguration. I mean, certainly it's not going to look like it has in the past. I don't think, I mean, I think the amount of security you would need if they were allowing more people to come and all of that would be much higher. Um, but you know, it, I think this often gets to the sort of priorities of our government and, you know, the divisions within Congress that have prevented more aid from going out. Um, so, I mean, I mean, it's a valid question, but I think that a lot of these precautions would have to be taken whether or not they were going to stand outside and, and put their hands on the Bible or do it within, you know, in the White House or somewhere else. Or hold up the Bible like the president did, perhaps. Yeah. Um, here's a comment from a listener named Kelly who says, politicians need to be less worried about their political careers and more worried about the future of this nation and democracy for generations to come. Their careers are a blip on the screen of this crisis. This crisis will reverberate and have ramifications well beyond their lifetime. Stop being selfish and instead be the selfless civil servants you were elected to be. 
And Jessica Taylor, a question from a listener named Pam who says, there's been some talk that there are Senate Republican staff who are threatening to resign en masse if their senators don't vote to impeach because they're so upset about having been terrorized last work. Any last week, any word on that? You, you do have some staff of uh, at least Texas Senator Ted Cruz, along with Missouri Senator Josh Hawley, that sort of led the charge last week to um, you know, to object to certification in Arizona and Pennsylvania, though they, you know, other senators later withdraw their, withdrew their um, objections after the riots. Um, and I mean, this could be a seminal moment, certainly. I mean, there's, there's a lot more that I just feel like is, and a lot of people feel like is going to come out. You have also um, Mickey Sherrill, a Democrat from New Jersey has alleged that there were members essentially giving recon tours to some of these people on the day before. Um, You know, one of the most baffling things to me when I was watching all of this unfold last Wednesday as someone that I was not there last Wednesday, but as someone that works out of the Capitol very regularly, if you don't know the layout, it is not easy to enter and find your way to the Senate or the House floor. It is a maze of tunnels and staircases and it is not easy to find. And so that is something that I think is bolstering a lot of people's belief that these people um, had some sort of perhaps help or were able to find plans online in the dark web or whatever. So, I mean, there's going to be investigations, I think, certainly into that, too. And remember that Democrats, again, will be in control of both the House and the Senate and can lead those. And so, you know, there could be, you know, staffers, this affected Everyone that was there on Capitol Hill that day, it wasn't just members, it was staffers. And then another thing to look at is that, you know, even after all of this happened, not even a week later, they instituted um, more security measures to go into the house, putting up metal detectors and wanding members as they were going in. And you had many Republicans that were disregarding it, that we're ignoring it and walking around and that we're yelling at Capitol Police, according to accounts from reporters that were there. Um, these were people that had just put their life on the line for these members and, what, and you know, asking them to go through a metal detector, which as anyone that goes anywhere in D.C. can attest, you have to go through to virtually enter any building, let alone fly, um, you know, uh, it, it really sort of struck a very discordant tone based on everything that had happened over the past week. And and now Pelosi has said that, you know, they're voting, they will be voting to institute fines if these members now um, d- do not adhere to these security measures. Well, let me go to some more listener emails. A lot of questions coming in. And Chris McGarrion, uh, here's one from a listener named Lori who says, what happens to Trump's war chest? largely the result of his Stop the Steal fundraising effort. If he is barred from future federal office, can it be the subject of any criminal proceeding flowing from sedition charges either against him or perhaps Giuliani? Is this part of McConnell's thinking? Uh, so the president keeps the money. Uh, I mean, unless somebody can argue that his campaign account was involved in criminal activity, which nobody is currently arguing right now, um, you know, what can he use it for if he can't run for office again? All kinds of things. He could use it for campaign ads. He could run, you know, television advertising every day saying how bad Brian Kemp is in Georgia. He could, you know, fund other, you know, other political efforts that he's interested in. Uh, he could maybe even pay some of his own legal costs. 
uh, if they stem from, you know, his political activity. Um, you know, it's not, uh, you know, a, you know, necessarily a slush fund that he can do anything he wants with it, but there are, you know, he, he can expect to tap that money in a lot of different political ways. And a question, uh, Marisa Lagos from a listener named Marsh, who says, how likely is it that those who appear to be implicated in assisting or inciting the insurrectionists will be expelled if the evidence supports their prior planning and real-time participation? Expelled from, from Congress? Presumably. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I th we don't know. I mean, to Jessica's point, it just really depends on where this investigation goes. I think if somebody were to be brought up on criminal charges, that could certainly be a, a possibility. Um, you know, given what we've seen this week, I think it would really depend on the evidence in terms of how, how that would play out from a partisan manner. I just want to underscore what Jessica said. I was in the Capitol last fall and I couldn't find anything. <laughs> and I had, you know, and I had help and directions to places. So it really is remarkable seeing what happened. And I think that this is a really important question as to whether people were given tours ahead of time. And if they were, whether the members or staff who did that had any indication of what they were planning. There were, certainly seems to be uh, a good deal of at least evidence that points that way at this point. We'll have to see how it all shakes out. But there, I think, as Jessica said earlier, there were some tours that were given and uh, some thought they were to stake out the place and get, you know, there were some people involved in this uh, who had tactical training and military training and all of that. We're talking, if you just joined us, about the latest on the historic impeachment and also about what happens next. And we do want your questions or comments. If you have them about the impeachment, you can give us a call at our toll-free number, 866-733-6786, and we'll go to more of your calls after a quick break. That number again, 866-733-6786, or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email us, forum at kqed.org. Our guests include Jessica Taylor from the Cook Political Report, and Chris McGarrian from the Los Angeles Times, and Marisa Lagos from KQED. More from you when we return. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're getting the latest on the historic impeachment and talking about what happens next with Jessica Taylor, Senate and Governor's Editor of the Cook Political Report. Marisa Lagos, who is politics correspondent for KQED and co-host of KQED's Political Breakdown Show, and Chris McGarrian, who is White House reporter with the Los Angeles Times. If you'd like to add your voice here or if you have a question or comment, the toll-free number to reach us, 866-733-6786. Again, that's 866-733-6786 or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook or at KQED Forum or email us forum at kqed.org. Here's Trish, our next caller. Trish, welcome aboard. Good morning. Good morning, Michael. First of all, congratulations on your glorious career. You, um, you have been, you've been the, the best and you, you still are. Anyway, my question today is, 
Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, the new House member, is planning to impeach Biden on, I believe, his inauguration day. Is this something that could actually happen? <laughs> and also a question about Lauren Boebert. How can Pelosi get her to, um, you know, join the House rather than to be, you know, fighting with it all the time? Two, uh, two-part question there. Marisa, can we go to you? Well, I mean, this is why the election was so hard fought. Uh, Democrats have control of of Congress. Um, you know, I, Marjorie Taylor Greene can file whatever she wants, but I don't think it's going anywhere. Um, and what was the second question? I'm sorry. I'd... Trish, your second question was? Uh... Yeah, Lauren Boebert. Oh, you know, yeah. She's really just pretty incendiary so far. So how can Pelosi get her in the into the fold? Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be um, interesting is the wrong word, but just to watch these two types of members who really, you know, came from the fringes um, and are, you know, a, a, have association with QAnon, the conspiracy theory. Um, I think that some of this could play out through this capital investigation, right? There's questions about whether... Uh, that member actually, you know, gave away Pelosi's location during the siege. So I think um, we're going to see, uh, it, it, I think we're going to see sort of a dual, I, like I'll be watching for what, how Democrats and the leadership handle this type of thing, but also how the Republican caucus handles it. Because I do think with what we talked about with the, the schism with Trump and, um, you know, the fact that a lot of Republican donors and, and other establishment are, are finally breaking with him, um, that this could mean uh, it'll be harder for some of these more fringe members. Well, it brings up another question that one of our listeners, Bill, poses. Uh, he wants to know, could Congress enact a rule that allows for members to vote in confidence or secret when there are threats of violence? Perhaps the votes could then be made public at a later date after a cooling down period. Marisa? I mean, I think that would really fly in the face of our open democracy. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. Um, and I think that that would be something that, you know, security if that would be a very remarkable sort of move I, I can't see that happening and i don't think congress wants that to happen i mean there's a reason that they came back on january 6th and finished their business it was to send a clear message um and i and i don't think that they want to see us being cowed or um you know and i and i'm not really sure that that would make a difference if we're talking about the political considerations of some of some republicans honestly another caller rulaman good morning you're on the air welcome yes good morning how are you Thank you. Okay. Okay. My opinion about this is that uh, we should bring to justice all the people that were helping to spread out all the lies, including all the senators. Otherwise, if we are not going to do anything. They're going to laugh at us, and they will continue to do that. And what they need to do is that whoever is lying to any kind of elections or any fraud of anything should be investigated if they don't find proofs or if they don't show any proofs of what they're talking about, they should be incarcerated or should be spelled out of the party, whether it is a Republican or it's a Democrat. That's the only way we're going to stop all this BS in the White House. And the, those Republicans, the Republicans are working for themselves. They are not working for the American people. That's why. Well, what about uh, the notion we're hearing from Rulamon, Jessica Taylor, that there ought to be really consequences for not only those in Congress, uh, but, you know, you cover the governor's races as well. A lot of the governors have uh, 
come out pretty strongly and said, despite what courts have ruled otherwise, a uh, great majority, preponderance of courts, uh, uh, to the contrary, that this election was stolen, that it was uh, completely, uh, in many ways, fraudulent and so forth. I mean, this has been put forward despite uh, uh, judgments by courts that have been appointed by this president. Well, the consequences are supposed to come in the form of elections, but what you have and what Trump has sown effectively is that many of these members and governors and so on are more afraid of being challenged in a primary than largely standing up and doing what probably many of them believe is the right thing. Um, you know, to me, what the probably the most surprising vote yesterday in the House that no one expected was Tom Rice, who is a very conservative and has been a very in line with Trump um, congressman from uh, South Carolina, Republican from the Myrtle Beach area, which is a very conservative area. Um, a lot of very conservative retirees. And, you know, he had even voted to um, object to uh, Arizona and Pennsylvania. But then days later, I think after what he's on the Capitol had changed his mind. And from my sources there in South Carolina is certainly going to face a primary and could be in real danger of losing there. That's the, um, you know, consequences that they face. You have Peter Meyer, who is a new member from Minnesota, talking about threats that he has now gotten since he cast his vote in favor of impeachment, having to go out and buy body armor. These things are not normal. This is not what should happen, but we are at a place where where the discourse is no longer civil and it has largely been egged on by the outgoing president. And so will voters... Um, retreat from the base strategy over the coming years has president trump been undercut somewhat um you know by the fact that his greatest weapon for so long was his twitter feed that he could you know send out 280 characters and um really you know threaten people with a primary challenge and that was the biggest fear that they had but now that he has been permanently banned from that platform along with so many other social media platforms as well does that sort of mute his message going forward you have a republican party now at least from mitch mcconnell's vantage point and other you know someone like liz cheney in the house though that wants to move on from trumpism and what it has done to their party but you still very clearly have members that were brought here because of it like um lauren bobert and um, uh, marjorie taylor green that the other caller mentioned and so you know we are in the future of the Republican Party is very much at a crossroads in what it chooses to do and, um, you know, how much those threats that Trump has made backing primary challengers, you know, for instance, in Georgia against Brian Kemp there who, you know, followed the law and certifying the vote that Trump unloaded on him simply because he had been a Republican and he had endorsed him. So how much sort of teeth that will have going forward, we'll have to see. Well, the big and, question for the Republicans, I think, is what do they do about the fact that the grassroots is still the Trump party, uh, particularly when you look out in the rural hustings? Uh, let me bring another caller on here, though. Barry joins us from Santa Clara. Barry, welcome. You're on the air. Hi, thank you for taking me on the on the air. Um, I just want to say that um, over the four years, uh, Trump has uh, been emboldened by the Republicans. Uh, the Mueller report wasn't strong enough and Trump was emboldened. Um, and when he was impeached the first time, he was not convicted and he was emboldened. 
and he was much stronger, and he felt he could move forward. Um, I feel that uh, if he he is not dealt with this time and convicted, he will be stronger whether he is a president or not. His heroes are not Washington, Jefferson, Adams, or Lincoln. His heroes are Putin, Kim Jong-un, Hitler, and Mussolini. He wants to be a strong man. Okay, I thank you for that call. I want to go to Chris on that, but before I do, Marisa, um, Danny said you wanted a word oh, in before. I didn't. Well, hear I, just to what Jessica was talking about, it's so interesting because I think on the flip side, we're seeing, you know, in, in California, where Republicans successfully flipped four seats this year in pretty purple districts three of those members voted against impeachment. And I just, you know, we're going to be watching here to see if the kind of opposite is true, um, where they might have stronger challenges from Democrats. Um, Michelle Steele, Young Kim, uh, both voted for or against impeachment, um, which, you know, I think we were all watching to see where that went, given, you know, we expected the Devin Nunes and Daryl Isis and Kevin McCarthy's to do so. But I think, this is a crossroads, as she phrased it, and I think that, that it's going to, I mean, this is the challenge for both parties of having such huge caucuses in the House where you have such very different, you know, districts and constituents who obviously have very different priorities depending on where you are in the country and, and, and quite frankly, within just within some states. Yeah, and I did want to go back uh, to Chris McGarry for a moment to get your response, Chris, to this notion that uh, many have that Donald Trump really wants to be, I mean, he has followers who... Uh, kind of bow down to him as an emperor. They even have a name that they describe themselves as, uh, you know, followers of the emperor of Trump or something along those lines. Uh, and it, it's pretty clear that uh, it's the despots that he does admire, whether it's Putin or Erdogan or Kim Jong-un. Um, and to some extent, I suppose one could lay out the argument that uh, to say that an election was stolen is a way of trying to consolidate power and come to power. And, uh, it's, uh, to some extent, maybe out of a Putin playbook in many ways, isn't it? Uh, I would argue that, that that's an accurate description of, of Donald Trump. He has always expressed admiration for authoritarians and disdain for uh, fellow democracies. Um, he views uh, dictators as strong and uh, leaders that you know bend to the will of voters as weak. Um, he's never accepted a loss of any kind. Uh, anybody who was surprised by his reaction to losing to Joe Biden should just scroll back to Iowa in 2016 when he accused the caucuses of being rigged for Ted Cruz. Um, who is now one of his major acolytes, it appears. Exactly, exactly. Uh, I mean, w- the one thing I, I would say is, um, indeed, the president was emboldened by not being charged in the Russian investigation and kind of escaping uh, conviction in the first impeachment. Uh, I think the question now is on both Republican voters and the Republican Party. Uh, do, do party leaders continue to give him oxygen uh, going forward? And do voters you know, continue to show allegiance to him? Um, and you know, that's going to kind of determine how much influence he has. I mean, he's never going to show, uh, you know, you know, uh, he's never going to apologize for anything he's done, but it's just a question of how everybody else is going to treat him going forward. And we'll bring another caller on. Uh, Giora, thank you for waiting. You're on the air with us. Good morning. Thank you so much, Michael, and thank you for your extraordinary contributions to our uh, civil rights, truly. I want to ask the panel why, uh, if they have any inkling on why the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Miley, and the heads of all the branches of the armed forces 
found necessary to state that come January 20th, President-elect Biden will be the 46th commander-in-chief. Although I agree with their statement, it is truly an intervention of the military forces in the political process, which unfortunately I witnessed often in my youth in, in another country. Thank you for the responses. And thank you for the question. And it is uh, in some ways unprecedented. Marisa, you want to weigh in here? Yeah, I mean, I I don't cover national security, but my sense is that this was something that the Joint Chiefs felt they needed to do, that they wanted to reassure the public. Um, I don't think that they, I, I, I would assume they did not take that lightly. Uh, I don't think most Well, forgive people... me, Marisa, I think it started with Nancy Pelosi inquiring uh, about nuclear codes in Trump's hands and the clear and present. Yeah, I mean, I think those are slightly different things. I think Pelosi... Um, you know, obviously had, I'm sure, security reasons for that, but there seem to be political reasons, too, to kind of undercut Trump. I, I think she's pretty good at trolling the president at his own game. Um, but it did feel like that was a concerted decision by military leaders to say, hey, we just we want to be on record saying we are not going to disrupt the transition in power. Um, and again, I don't think that is something they took lightly because it is not something that in our civilian led military we normally expect or want uh, military leaders to win on. Well, here's Todd, who writes, hundreds of innocent Americans lose their lives every day because of the coronavirus pandemic, and many more lose their whole livelihoods. How can Democrats justify that impeaching a president should take precedent over legislation to prevent suffering and death? And that ties in, I think, with a question that our next caller wants to raise. Bob, join us. Welcome. Hey, Michael. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Uh, you know, I would say leadership in the Democratic Party being very experienced, but a lightning rod uh, for all a lot of Republicans is a little bit counterproductive to have Nancy Pelosi, all the old guards still there, rather than uh, new people who uh, can bring a new face to it, new energy, and to be quite frank with you, not be the enemy of the de- uh, American people uh, in, the li- in the eyes of Republicans. Well, we've been talking about what the Republican Party ought to think about for its future and for its destiny. And uh, let's uh, talk about this in terms of the Democratic Party and where they should be putting their priorities. Can I start with you, Jessica Taylor? Yeah, I mean, this is this is the sort of Gordian knot we talked about earlier, uh, uh, that the Biden administration wants to move on. But there is a feeling among many Democrats and many Republicans that what the president did deserves punishment and that for history that that there needs to be consequences to that you cannot let these you know this incitement go go without punishment or something in some way and that way that that is prescribed in the constitution is an impeachment um and so it's but at the same time it is hard to um I think that there is a cognizance within the Biden team that they want to move on to other things, primarily dealing with the pandemic and not just economically, but moving forward on a better vaccine rollout on $2,000 payments, which is something that now with Democrats in control has a lot better chance of of passing, certainly. Um, And so it does seem like they are trying to work out something where, you know, they would 
um, you know, work on, have the trial on Monday through Saturday, but work on things in the afternoon and possibly on Sunday. Now, under current rules, they cannot have the impeachment trial on Sunday, um, but they could pass other legislation on Sunday. So we could see certainly a busy time there with that. But, you know, which one is going to take precedence in the news and in people's consciousness? We don't see it feels strange to say that we don't see impeachment trials often given the fact that we saw one just a year ago but i mean this will just be the fourth one in the country's history so and half of them have now occurred within a one-year period and here's a a question it sort of redounds back to something i said earlier about uh, the grassroots support for president trump being largely rural and in red states and all of that but a listener writes and I'm going to go to you on this, if I may, Chris McGarrian. Uh, listener says, this isn't a rural problem. Time after time, the people arrested who invaded the Capitol are upper middle class. It's about an authoritarian mindset with a big lie. Do we know, you know, the breakdown of uh, essentially those who were in the insurrection? Do we have any way of getting a spot on on that? Uh, so we don't have a full breakdown of everybody who was there or arrested. Um, but but I, would, but I would agree with his listener. Um, you know, there are a lot of people there who... Uh, you know, our middle class or upper class. There was somebody who was the leader of a, a company in the Chicago area. There are off-duty police officers. Uh, there was yeah, I was a, just talking about the, the, the grassroots, Chris. I want to make that clear, too. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of the people... There was a guy arrested, for example, who was demanding organic food in jail, as I'm sure you're well aware. Um, right. I mean, what I would classes. say is, you know, the, yeah. the way I would define, you know, the grassroots uh, of the Trump party, you know, crosses those socioeconomic lines um you know i I, you know i I wouldn't suggest that you know these are people who are only coming from rural areas or anything like that you know the grassroots stretches through the suburbs and cities i I didn't mean to suggest that and uh, you've clarified it very well and i thank you for that and thanks to marisa lagos and jessica taylor and you our listeners stay safe i'm michael krasny funds for the production of forum are provided by the members of kqed public radio and the germanicos foundation and the generosity foundation support for forum comes from san francisco opera set 10 years after a school shooting the critically acclaimed opera innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.